Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. On October 14th, something very unusual happened in Thailand when a royal motorcade carrying the queen brushed up against a group of pro-democracy protesters. The monarchy in Thailand has traditionally been a culturally revered institution and has been immune from protest through harsh laws that prohibit any insult of the monarchy. But on this day, a group of protesters heckled the queen as she drove by. That incident may prove to be a turning point in a growing protest movement in Thailand that is demanding democratic changes to the country. The protests against the regime of Prime Minister Prayuth began in earnest just before the COVID lockdown. Prayuth came to power in a coup in 2014, and in 2019 he was able to cement his authority through parliamentary elections of dubious legitimacy. A pro-democracy party that gained a surprising number of seats in those elections was disbanded earlier this year, leading to street protests. In recent weeks, these protests have increased in their intensity. My guest today, Benjamin Zawaki, is the Senior Program Specialist at the Asia Foundation and author of the book Thailand, Shifting Ground Between the U.S. and a Rising China. We kick off discussing the events of October 14th and the role of the monarchy in Thai society and politics before having a longer conversation about what this protest movement means for the future of Thailand. This is obviously a very fast-moving situation with new iterations of the protest happening on a near-daily basis, but I think this conversation will give you the background and context you need to understand events as they unfold in Thailand, and also the broader international significance of this protest movement. Uh, so this is going to be the last episode I post before the U.S. Uh, elections. Uh, I know I'm posting this a few days early, uh, and that is uh, because I think any content I post on the Monday before the election, which is on Tuesday, will uh, be totally cannibalized. So uh, enjoy this episode today, and I will be back with you in the days following uh, November 3rd with some election-related analysis. So stay tuned for that. And obviously, you know, I, I don't need to remind people who listen to this podcast to vote, but uh, I would encourage you to encourage uh, other potential fence sitters to get out there and vote. All right. Now, here is my conversation with Benjamin Zawaki of the Asia Foundation. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. 
Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, it's a, it's a good question because it would seem that the Royal Motorcade that day was, was rerouted from its original route. At least that's what the sort of what reports have been. And then after, after that, it was essentially, you know, a he said, she said sort of a thing. Um, where some avowed, you know, royalists were were on the streets and were, you know, presumably there primarily to provide, you know, support to the royal motorcade, motorcade as opposed to simply to oppose, you know, what were being seen as clearly anti-monarchical, um, in some cases, demonstrators. And then, you know, one thing led to another, and there were there was an exchange between the two sides. Um, whether the police were um, caught off guard or, or purposely sort of lax in their, in their law enforcement, it's hard to say, but, but the, the situation was pretty quickly brought under control again. Um, but it did result in a number of arrests um, and charges being brought under laws that seemed to, to suggest that, that, that there was unlawful activity on that day on the part of the protesters. Much of the commentary that I've seen around this incident suggests that it's something of a, of a rather significant turning point, uh, both in Thai politics, but also potentially even in Thai culture and society uh, because of the traditional reverence to which Thais have historically um, conferred upon the the monarchy. And this was an incident in which, uh, you know, younger generation of Thai protesters were outwardly showing hostility to the monarchy, which is, for one, like illegal under some anachronistic laws. Well, there's there's been a lot made of this. I mean, what's new about these protests is that, yes, for the first time, um, protesters have been express and explicit in calling for a reform of the monarchy. Uh, implicit in those calls is a certain amount of criticism, right? And, and that is new. You have a, a younger generation of, largely these protests are made up of a younger generation, um, sort of first-time first protesters, if you will, that the majority are university students. So, you know, even 10 years ago, when, when things really kicked off in Bangkok rather violently, these students would have been, you know, children, essentially. Um, and you also have, at the same time, a, a virtually a brand new monarch, right, who, who was, um, who's only been on the throne for, for a number of years. And so it's, it is a sort of changing of the guard in more ways than one. And that criticism is, in fact, new. What is not new, but I think has been has been characterized as such, is uh, discourse on the monarchy in the context of political protests in Thailand. Um, that goes back, frankly, to late 2005, when the People's Alliance for Democracy, the PAD, also known as the Yellow Shirts, um, actively invoked um, the late King Bumipon, who was who was ill at the time, but very much uh, alive and and, uh, and 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 active in, in in Thailand, and basically invoked the monarchy. And tried to um, to call on the monarchy to get more involved, um, and they were avowedly, you know, pro pro monarch, uh, pro royalist themselves. Uh, this was the, the same can be said of the PDRC, um, the People's Democratic Reform Committee, that was um, eventually sort of whose whose protests sort of precipitated the 2014 coup. Um, also very pro pro monarchy and, and invoked the monarchy openly. And in between, you had the UDD, the the um, uh, the red shirt protests, who were critiqued and criticized for for criticism of the monarchy but that was that was largely overblown certainly not to the level of what it is today and while there may have been some sort of pro republican or anti monarchical elements uh, in those red shirt demonstrations they were not by and large criti- criticizing um, the throne 
And so, yes, criticism of the monarchy is new to the 2020 protests, but in invocation of the monarchy and trying to involve the monarchy in Thailand's political crisis is not new. It goes back about 15 years. So can can you just maybe provide some background for listeners who are not aware of uh, the monarchy and who the former monarch was who ruled for something like 70 years and uh, his role in shaping Thai society and who this new monarch is? Well, the late King Bumipon, yes, was on the throne for, for 70 years. Um, and look, we're, we're talking about the late 40s through 2016. And so when you talk about, you know, modern Thai society, you're talking about the post-war modern world uh, during which this particular monarch was, was you know, was, was on the throne. I believe when he passed, he was the longest reigning monarch in, in the world, if I'm not mistaken. So there was really, you know, when you look up, when you think of Thailand in the post-war context as a as a impoverished, you know, Southeast Asian nation that had been invaded by um, Japan and was, you know, sort of liberated, if you will, at the end of the end of the war, and then moving fairly quickly into the Cold War and being becoming essentially a client state of the United States from, um, well, during the during the, the early '60s through the mid '70s or so during the you know the Vietnam War, um, and then all through the sort of the, the hyper development of the '80s, the financial crash of the '90s. And then, of course, the, the 21st century, where we've had a, an, almost an ongoing political crisis since 2005. The king was there. The late king was there for all of that and in many ways presided over it, um, you know, in, in, in many respects. Um, the, the late king, Bumipon, was uh, elevated to a, a stature or a status of almost um, deification, right? I mean, he was he was almost universally revered around the country. Um, and was seen in Buddhist terms as as, as holding a very high, um, you know, charismatic and spiritual uh, position. And he he owed early on in his reign, um, I, I don't know if credit is the word, but certainly a certain amount of accountability to um, to the to the alliance that the United States shaped with Thailand in the in the late fifties, um, basically to combat uh, what was seen as you know the, the the growing communist tide throughout throughout East Asia. And it was basically, you know, the king that kept the U.S.-Thailand alliance um, so strong. And also then the, because it, that was a war, the U.S.'s um, uh, relations, deepening relations, ever-deepening relations with the Thai uh, military meant that there was a sort of triangle, if you will, between Thailand's monarch, Thailand's military, and the United States. And that certainly helped shape um, modern Thailand, what was for a very long time a very pro-U.S. Uh, country during the, the balance of the 20th century, a very pro-U.S. country. Um, so regardless of how you look at Thai society, economically, socially, politically, diplomatically, um, and otherwise, that the, the late King Bumipon was was there, right? Um, his era is, is, is just uh, unmatched in terms of its length and its breadth and its depth. Now, after he passed in 2016, uh, he was succeeded by, by his son, about whom so much less is simply known, right? And, and, and can't, be, can't be known, frankly. He's only been, you know, king for a short, short amount of time. But as I say, um, you know, it became popular after after the late King Bumipon died for people to wear T-shirts or the posts on their Facebook or what have you that they were, you know, proud to have lived and in many cases were um, to have been born while while King Bumipon was 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 king. Um, well, that you know, you're, you're seeing now just a, a young generation that in many cases doesn't have great you know a lot of memories of, of the late king if they're if they're very young, and even the, the protesters on the street today. Um, you know, we're just barely coming of age, if you will, when 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 the late king passed, and so it really is sort of a new era for for the protesters and for the palace at the same time. 
Uh, so, so this new king, Vajira Longcorn, is not as revered. Is, is that correct? I mean, he seems to have a reputation for extravagance and living abroad, and uh, that seems to have perturbed a younger generation of, of ties. Well, I think the most that can be said is that is that there are ties for the first time openly, you know, critical of the monarchy. Now, whether that's coincidental to the current king or whether that's incidental is is you know people will draw their own conclusions. But it, it is new, as I say, that is a new aspect to the protest that didn't exist, uh, you know, prior to 2020. Even though there were political protests for for you know 15 years uh, during the, the, the this century. Now it's probably fair to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the you know current protest movement was not initially animated by like an anti-monarchist agenda. Rather, it was rather directly um, sort of against the rule of the current prime minister. Can you just d- discuss the circumstances under which uh, Prime Minister Prayuth came to office in 2014? Well, in 2014, it's really quite simple. Uh, he staged a coup on May the 22nd um, that ended, uh, however you want to define it, certainly ended or, or others might say accelerated Thailand's political conflict, which dated all the way back to November 2005. It had ebbed and flowed. It had taken on different, literally different colors, if you will, given that the, that the, the protesters were often color coded, as I mentioned before, yellow versus red. Uh, and of course, green, if you, if you throw the military into, into the mix. Um, but Prayuth basically saw that, um, that there were, there were demonstrators against at the time, uh, the, the prime minister who happened to be the sister of the, the prime minister who had been overthrown in 2006. Her name was Yingluck Shinawat. Her brother, older brother was Taksin Shinawat. And he basically just called time on all of this, right? And forcibly took over the country in May of that year. And in contrast to previous coup d'etat, uh, stating power, for much, much longer than, than anyone, I think, anticipated, even close Thailand watchers, uh, I think, were taken aback by just how, how long he, he remained in power. And in some ways, that was uh, certainly incidental to, and most would say driven by the fact that it was clearly the twilight years for the late King Bumipon. Um, no one knew exactly when he would pass, but he was, he was sick for a very long time. He was hospitalized. And it was kind of understood that, that Prayuth would stay in power uh, long enough to sort of oversee a smooth transition from one king to another. Um, and that transpired, of course, as I say, between uh, 2016 and, and, and 2019 uh, in terms of that royal transition. And then in March of 2019, uh, there were elections that were held, um, but they were controversial. I mean, the, the, the military junta for the five years it was in power prior to the elections was able in many respects to sufficiently rewrite the rules of the game such that it would have been difficult for them to lose the election. You know, it was not a guarantee victory necessarily, but the, 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 the weights were clearly stacked in its favor. And to, to no one's surprise, they were able to maintain power after those elections. What in some ways was the um, proximate cause, if you will, of, of the current protests, I think date back just to February this year before the COVID-19 pandemic descended. And that was when uh, the Future Forward Party, which was a very pro, pro-democracy pro and sort of new blood, younger generation, sort of progressive po- uh, political party in Thailand, received an unexpectedly high number of votes in those elections. Um, but after which, um, it's, it's the, the, the party's leader um, and eventually the party itself was, uh, were dissolved. 
you had the situation where the ruling military junta called for elections, but um, perhaps rigged the elections or rigged the rules of the elections to such a way that they would be guaranteed, almost guaranteed, to retain power. But then you had this upstart pro-democracy movement that surprised everyone by winning more numbers of, of seats in parliament than perhaps people had, had expected. Then they were cracked down upon. Yeah, that's that's essentially right. I mean, whether that, you know, to say it was rigged, it's perhaps too, too strong as would, as would be, you know, guaranteed to win, but certainly it would have been, it was theirs to lose. Right. And I think given, you know, the future forward party, I think took so many by surprise because the rules had been rewritten in such a way that it was, it just seemed unlikely um, mathematically for a party to do as, as well as it did. Um, And I think that took sort of the establishment by surprise. I think it took the electorate uh, at large by surprise, but it was empowering uh, in many respects because the voter base um, wasn't entirely a younger generation, but was largely a younger generation. And that's the same generation you see now on the on on the streets. Uh, COVID-19 did a pretty good job, as it did everywhere in the world, of knocking everyone off the streets temporarily. Um, the government handled the, the public health crisis extremely well, quite frankly. Um, but I think there was there was perhaps an assumption that that, you know, in, in the in the post covid world, if you will, um, at least in Thailand, that, the, you know, the, the, the curve was flattened basically by, by the beginning of June. There was perhaps the assumption that that would be the end of the protests when, in fact, as, as you're well aware, they came back in, in full force, you know, shortly after the public health crisis seemed to be seemed to abate. You know, you referenced this earlier that much of the protest movement is comprised of, of young people. I mean, is there a discernible leadership to this movement? Well, I think yes and no. I mean, discernible to there are certain leaders for sure or people that are that are more um more readily associated with the protests than others. I think in, in some ways the government was backfooted, I think, during the, the protests as far back as, say, July and August, when it was very difficult for them to identify who these leaders were. They, they would certainly, they knew who the political activists were in the country, and they knew there were political protests going on, and they often just sort of put two and two together and assumed in many cases that the activists must be, must be leaders. Um, I think there's been a little bit more success as time has gone on by the government at identifying who who the leaders are, um, but they're not they're not um, and they've taken a page out of Hong Kong's book in many respects in that they want to be and to be seen as largely leaderless, such that it's impossible to sort of you know cut off the head and, and watch the rest of the body die, um, and and we see that even now. But but clearly when you when you look at the fact that these protests are increasingly well planned, right? I mean they're they're announced. Uh, in, in broad strokes in advance, but their exact location is announced uh, just really, you know, moments before before things materialize. Clearly, someone is calling the shots, right? So even if it's if it's a, a leaderless revolution, sort of publicly speaking, privately, there there must be people behind the scenes making making decisions. And I suppose the fear within that camp is that as time goes on, you know, as these things often often happen, you know, it, it only uh, it creates opportunity for, you know, for dissension or disagreement in terms of, you know, the way forward. Um, but for now, they've been very fluid. And they, as you, as you, as you say, they've been very, um, they've been largely of a, of a younger generation. And what are protesters demanding? Well, they have three express demands, um, reform of, or, or re- amending or in some ways um, changing the constitution. I don't remember exactly which, what, what verb they're, they're calling for there, but they, um, they want a new, a new constitution or, or, or a highly different constitution than what um, the military government was able to put into place um, during its five years in power prior to those, those March 2019 elections. 
Uh, that's demand number one. Demand number two is for the immediate resignation of, of Prime Minister Prayut. And demand number three is a reform of Thailand's monarchy. So those are the three express, you know, demands. As you may be aware, last week they, you know, they they made they made very um, clear that that they wanted Prayuth to resign by this past Sunday. Prayuth has not done so, of course. Um, so it's you know it's anyone's guess to see whether that demand gets gets shifted in any way. Um, Thailand's parliament has agreed to review its constitution towards some kind of um, you know revision or amendment. Um, but that's bound to take some time, um, sort of by its definition, and one can expect the parliament, you know, to sort of slow walk that to some extent. It's also difficult to see that um, whether or not what they what they might come up with would be acceptable to to the protesters. Um, and of course, reform of the monarchy is sort of anyone's guess. It seemed like pretty much a non-starter, you know, before the protest started. And I think you know, as, as time goes on, it seems even even more of a non-starter. But um, time will tell. You know, we're speaking on Wednesday, October 28th. This is obviously a fast moving situation. Um, are there any sort of events or inflection points coming up that would suggest to you one way or another how this might play out, the situation might play out over the coming, you know, several weeks? No, I mean, that's the question that people are all talking about is just how long can this last, right? First of all, do, do the demonstrators have the numbers? Just numerically speaking, do they have the you know the, the the feet on the ground to 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 con- to continue to maintain you know the the attention of the Thai populace at large, right? And to and to affect you know any any kind of change. Um, they ever since the beginning, really, except for a few exceptions where where they you know announced in in advance that they were going to converge at a particular location, and they all converged you know in in one location for a period of time. For the most part, these protests have been you know, defined almost in flash mob terms, right? I mean, they pop up in much smaller numbers than the, than the protests earlier in this century that were mass mobilizations of people in the city center. Um, as you may recall, the PAD famously took over Thailand's airports. I mean, the, these these protesters are, in addition to being of a, of a younger set, um, they're a much more mobile set. Their communications, of course, are being done um, in real time electronically, um, and they often will mobilize in two or three places at once without a whole lot of, of, of notice to the general general public. So it's, uh, it's, it's, as you say, it's very fluid, it's very dynamic, but it's also, uh, it's got to be exhausting, right, on some level. And, and, and there, there have been questions as to whether or not the government strategy might just be, hey, wait this out, you know, make this a war of attrition, um, you know, hope that, that you know, public uh, support for the protests, the extent to which it's discernible or, or measurable, uh, dissipates, and you know, and that eventually, you know, the students will will go back to their pre-protest lives. On the other hand, you know, if the numbers rapidly increase, or if the government should, you know, sort of, um, you know, shoot itself in the foot, so to speak, make a major uh, mistake of some kind, such that um, such that public support, you know, goes up markedly, um, then something could change. I think the other the other X factor is that the, you know, if Thailand has done extremely well. In handling the public health crisis, which it has, it's also slated uh, to be among the worst, if not the worst, hit countries economically in Southeast Asia on account of COVID nineteen. And you know, a perfect storm in some respects would be, you know, a, a young, relatively small group of political protesters meeting a much larger group of sort of economically, you know, uh, depressed or um, you know, disadvantaged or or just suffering, you know, uh, people. And if that should happen, um, then, you know, the numbers could really, 
you know, skyrocket very, very, very quickly. That hasn't happened yet, um, and it may not happen. But there's there's sort of you know informed speculation that that could be a uh, um, you know an inflection point. And if you look at protests, for example, the Saffron Revolution in Myanmar in 2007, you know, from the outside it looked like essentially you know monks and and political dissidents on the street, um, and therefore people spoke of it in very much political terms. But you know, when you when you scratch the surface, you realize that a lot of those people were, were out there because they, they couldn't pay the bus fare, right? They couldn't pay their school fees anymore. It was that they were economically driven as much as politically. And that, I suppose, is probably the real fear on the part of, of the government. I'm curious to learn uh, what perhaps broader international or even geopolitical implications you see uh, in this moment in in Thailand. It is. It's very much dynamic. I mean, the U.S.-Thailand relationship, as I as I argued in my in my book, was you know very much a bona fide alliance through the 20th century, but has been on the back foot for the past two two decades, um, basically as a result of the rise domestically of of, of Thaksin Shinawat, who um, was very sort of anti-U.S. and pro-China in his foreign policy. You combine that with a China that at the time was growing at 8% economically per year, and it would only, it would only increase to an improbable 14% over the course of Taksin's, uh, Taksin's tenure here in Thailand. Um, and of course, the United States, in, in the same year that Taksin was elected, um, was attacked on, on September 11th, which succeeded in basically distracting the United States away from Asia and you know, almost entirely into the, you know, the sandbox of the Middle East. Those three sort of factors conspired to give a sort of zero-sum advantage to the Chinese over the Americans over the, the ensuing two decades. Um, but things have been slightly different under, under President Trump, um, you know, who came to power or, you know, or basically took office just about just under three years after Thailand's coup d'etat. And the U.S. response to the coup was not well received in Thailand. Um, and, it, and it really caused, uh, you know, a rupture in some ways uh, between the U.S. and Thailand, one that proved to be relatively temporary, but also um, deeply felt. Trump what was the U.S. response to the coup? It did like the U.S. invoke its coup um, protocols in which uh, aid is immediately suspended? Yes. And even though the, the Foreign Assistance Act kicked in, which is a congressional act, which means there is no discretion by the executive branch for, you know, for that law kicking in. The executive branch was was seen as, and, and quite frankly, rightly seen as, or accurately seen as, as being very critical vocally as well. Within, in fact, within hours of the coup, um, at the time, Secretary of State uh, John Kerry issued a, a critical statement, um, and it was seen at the time very, by at least by pro coup ties, right ties who who were in favor of the coup d'état and were opposing the the prime minister who was overthrown. It was seen as an unwelcome sort of doctrinaire, dogmatic. Uh, response to the coup. And it was also seen very much in contrast to the coup d'etat in Egypt the previous year, when the United States referred to that as a, you know, I think it was uh, an intervention, democratic intervention, I think is what they called it, right? Sort of with some some analytical gymnastics, whereas in Thailand, of course, it was a coup is a coup is a coup. And and that did cause some some deep ruptures um, in, in Thailand, at least among the governing elite at the time, including, of course, the military. Ruptures that, that that Trump has has made some efforts at um, at repairing, but of course you know the Chinese who already uh, were you know had the advantage for you know the fourteen previous years were able to deepen that that advantage and certainly sort of fill the void and and exploit that that opening, such that um, you know as we speak the U.S. is headed into two elections five or six days from now and everything on the U.S. side is just sort of an, an you know wait and see 
on a wait and see basis. And the Chinese, of course, are, are moving as, as fast and as furiously as they can to increase their interest and their influence in the country, um, having been affected by COVID-19 much less uh, severely, frankly, than the United States economically and, and, and reputation wise. So, um, you know, ties are they're they're members of the of, of ASEAN. They're you know it's a Southeast Asian nation, and they've they've got their own foreign policy to to make, and they have agency in their foreign policy. But certainly, the the you know great power competition um, is affecting them. You know, it was beginning to affect them as much as it did you know seventy years ago. And I think you know ties of a certain age are able to sort of draw those parallels and are are rather concerned with where it could lead them. Uh, well, thank you, Benjamin. Is there any parting thoughts or anything else you wanted to leave listeners with before we sign off? Sure. I mean, as, as much as people have been talking about the newness of these protesters um, and these protests in terms of criticism of the monarchy, I think a much more significant difference in uh, between uh, today's demonstrations and the demonstrations that uh, preceded them throughout the, the, the 21st century, starting in, in late 2005 all the way through through early 2014, is that these protests are the first genuinely pro-democracy and pro-democratic protests that Thailand has seen since 1992 when people were out in the street protesting a military government. Um, although all of the different groups that protested in the early 21st century claimed you know, the mantle of democracy and claimed to be pro-democratic, were, were very much not, the, not so. Right? I mean, they, 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 and in some cases, we're not just uh, not in favor of democracy, but we're actively in opposition to democracy. We're calling for an end to elections. We're calling for uh, a selected government by a, a, you know, a chosen elite. Um, and we're fairly savvy in many respects at claiming to be democratic and getting the international community to see them as such. Um, but they they were not so. Whereas these these students, whether you're in favor of them or not, are you know when you look at what they're what's motivating them, one can argue that it's the, the first again the first genuinely pro democratic protest since 1992. Uh, well, Benjamin, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. Th- thanks very much, uh, Mark, and uh, I appreciate your your reaching out. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Benjamin. And uh, like I said earlier, expect uh, after November 3rd, a series of episodes, you know, looking at what is going on in the United States and the broader global implications of this election. All right. We'll see you next time and, and see you after uh, the U.S. elections.